the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme... Some British units, you know, the truce is agreed on a Friday evening, don't find out about it until late on the Saturday night. An uneasy truce, that precarious period after the ceasefire that officially concluded the Irish War of Independence in 1921. Those on the ground, the ordinary volunteers, it seems they were none the wiser as to what was actually going on and find out about it in the newspapers. We'll hear about how combatants on both sides reacted to the truce. Also, Downing Street Diaries. We have hundreds of London Irish cheering, screaming, London Irish women praying outside 10 Downing Street with those iconic images. The delegates from the Irish side, the plenipotentiaries as they were known, they were ushered into 10 Downing Street. How the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations began 100 years ago this week. It's great to be back for another season of the programme and as we return to the airwaves we're of course straight into another hugely important event on the commemorative calendar, the centenary of the treaty negotiations in London. But before that could happen there had to be a ceasefire. The truce that came into effect on the 11th of July 1921 brought an end to the Irish War of Independence, a conflict that had raged across Ireland for two and a half years. Of course nobody was absolutely certain at the time that that was what was happening. But we're going to spend most of the programme tonight looking at what exactly did happen during this period of truce. And we'll start by diving into the Collins Papers, one of the most popular archival collections in the military archives, which holds communications between top-level IRA commanders. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go online and you can see the lot, or pretty much the lot. Lisa Dolan joins me now. Uh, She's with the military archive. She's head of Reader's Services, Education and Outreach there. Um, Tell us, first of all, what exactly are in the Collins papers. When you hear about somebody's papers, you assume you're talking about private papers, you assume you're talking about letters to and from that person. The Collins papers are way more than that. Yeah, the the Collins papers aren't necessarily personal papers, which we would be used to um, if you're looking maybe at an author or something like that. Really what we have is a collection of documents which are connected to Michael Collins during the time when he was holding various appointments in general headquarters. Um, so we don't really have his political papers with within this. He was also Minister for Finance, as we know. So mostly they are to do with when he held the position as Director of Intelligence. Um, he was also Adjutant General for a period before Garojo Sullivan took over from him. So we have those as well. And then we have a few we have a few checkbooks and things like that that would kind of represent the time that he was Minister for Finance and, and he was in charge of paying the various staff from, you know, clerks to typists. But in a sense, the Collins papers really kind of take off once the truce happens because there's heightened confidence and because IRA intelligence officers are now a little bit more confident about committing things to paper. And uh, you have this almost... Teutonic paper trail of reports going from local intelligence officers to regional intelligence officers up to GHQ. It's an amazing uh, Mm. uh, trove, treasure trove, isn't it? That's it. I think peacetime kind of afforded not just the IRA, but also Dáil Éireann to kind of attend to a lot of, of matters. Um, people they became were, bureaucrats. They basically. did. And, and they were able to, people were able to move a lot more freely 
There was no raids. There was nothing like that. So there was also kind of a concerted effort now that people had returned to their localities and they didn't have to conceal themselves anymore. Now is a great time to gather intelligence. So we have quite a lot of intelligence report forms dating to the October, November period on printed forms. So they're very kind of, you know, Mm. official looking in a way. And they would record things like, you know, where were the regular troops stationed? So that would be the British Army side of things. Where were the RIC stationed? What buildings were they occupying? Who was in charge? Who was the divisional commander? Also, what's kind of interesting about these ones, Miles, is that they also um, they give the intelligence officer a chance to list people that they may have suspected. So they're interesting from that point of view. So you've got men, women named. um, There's no accusation as such levelled at them, but names and addresses are there and recorded during those two months. And then you also have the names of enemy clubs um, which, Golf and I clubs, hope I hope I'm not going to insult clubs. anybody here, but cricket clubs, hockey clubs, golf clubs, lawn tennis clubs, even Masonic lodges um, feature on that list. Um, so they're very interesting. There's 171 of those documents as well, Miles. They're online; they can be looked at. Mm. So fantastic for any kind of local historian. And it is a little bit creepy because when you read these documents, you're kind of thinking, okay, had the truce not held, you have to assume that some of those or perhaps all of those names on the list would become targets. Yeah, um, you could definitely you could definitely look at it that way. You know, they were gathering this information for a particular reason. Those involved in, you know, putting the truce terms together and the liaison officers observing the truce really felt that it was just hanging on by a thread and it all really depended on how well the negotiations were going to go in Britain really as to whether it would would hold and hold fast. Just because there's a truce of course does not mean that IRA training stops and that's one of the things Mm -hmm. that comes across from these papers. Yeah so I mean um, there was training in the August period there was also training in September and October and these training camps were in most localities and it was also an opportunity for the local IRA to actually gather and, and take over a place and establish camps so some of these training camps actually just became kind of early forts um, for the IRA and some of those that did go irregular as well they kind of held on to those premises. So we've got really detailed training reports because the director of training at the time, who would also be in the assistant chief of staff, was JJ O'Connell. So if training was going to be done and there was going to be that investment in it, it needed to count. So training was done very formally. Volunteers, mostly NCOs and officers, were kind of handpicked. So really only the most dedicated were given the opportunity to train at these camps. And in these documents, is there much bitching about the Johnny-come-latelys, the, the so-called summer soldiers or trusseliers yep, who is. suddenly turn up and, and join is. the volunteers? There is indeed. So, I mean, some of, the, some of the training reports would have a roll call, but some of them also have kind of assessments as well. So there can be kind of complementary language use and, and not so complementary entry as well. Are there confrontations, are there reports of confrontations of any kind between the uh, you know, between volunteer units and the Crown forces during the truce yeah, period? Yeah, I mean there's breaches of the of the truce reported on both sides. 
in even in Downing Street, you know, at the very beginning of the talks, there was a truce committee and they met on the 12th and it was really to look at how the truce was, was holding up. Also adding in a couple of things like if the truce was to be terminated, how would that be done and how would it be conveyed and that type of thing. So, I mean, you know, Michael Collins actually accuses the British of kind of observing his movements. He was in mass apparently in, in Covent Garden and he observed that he was being watched, which was, you know, a breach. Um, there's also kind of accusations that strategic moves were being made by the British. Um, so Sligo Workhouse was, was commandeered. The British said, they've always been our winter billets. We've just been taking them back. But, you know, the Irish side just said, you're not supposed to be making any moves like that without informing the liaison officer. Then kind of at a more local level, there is reports made by the British liaison officer to the Carlo liaison officer that 100 uh, uniformed IRA had, had paraded in Boris with arms, which was a breach of the truce. So there's a few things like that, Miles, that happen. One of the other things, I mean, I've come across this myself, and uh, that is the fact that it wasn't just the IRA who were continuing to train. The RIC had come out of their shell as well. And there seemed to be some sort of sinister recruitment going on, which suggested that perhaps there was a move on foot to create in what became the Irish Free State something like the Special Constabulary, the, the A, B and C specials in, in Northern Ireland. There are references to mm. that, I think, in some of, the, yeah. some of the, the papers in the Collins papers. Yeah, there wasn't supposed to be any reinforcement sent in or, or anything like that. You know, that was not an observance of the truce, but it was happening. And that's something that was observed in those October, November report forums that, you know, there appeared to be more people in the barracks it also was observed that it didn't take very much to provoke a display or a show of strength as well. So, you know, the IRA were kind of trying to keep things from getting to a point where maybe the military needed to intervene as well. It's absolutely fascinating. The And as I say, you can see them online. You can check them out for yeah. yourself. You can see what was going on in your own lo- locality. And, uh, you know, the intelligence officers from the smallest of units were sending up, uh, were sending up reports. Lisa, uh, thank you very much no for problem, joining Miles. us. No problem, Thanks for having me. Lisa, Lisa, is, Lisa Dolan is from the Military Archives and uh, was talking there about the Collins papers and what was going on during the truce and what you can find out about that period from the Collins papers. And it's a heck of a lot. We're going to ask now, though, what was the reaction to the truce from the combatants on both sides? Did the IRA and the Crown Forces use the lead up to the truce as an opportunity to settle scores? Were there any breaches of this uh, armistice in the second half of 1921? And to talk about this, I'm joined from our Cork studio by Dr. Porrigo O'Rourke, historian and author of Truce, Murder, Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence. And with me here in Dublin is historian and author Liz Gillis. Porrig, first of all, there had been talk of a potential peace settlement in late 1920, whispering that the British were willing to talk to Republicans, but nothing came of any of that. What had changed by July 1921? Well, I suppose the the British official position was always that they were never going to negotiate with Sinn Féin or its its representatives, but there had always been secret talks in the in the background. 
And really those talks intensified, um, you know, after Bloody Sunday and uh, Terence McSweeney's uh, hunger strike. And there had been an attempt to bring about a truce in uh, December of, of 1921 involving negotiations with Archbishop uh, Clune, who was uh, an Australian Archbishop of Irish background. The problem was the British were being very stringent in what they were going to demand. For example, they wanted it to be a unilateral ceasefire, that the IRA would come out and announce a ceasefire on their own without any reciprocation from the British. They also wanted the IRA to surrender or decommission their arms. And the British also wanted to prohibit certain members of the Dáil who were also members of the IRA, for example, Richard Mulcahy, Michael Collins, etc., meeting. And the British wanted the right to continue executing prisoners. And this obviously would have been a surrender more than a ceasefire for the Republicans, and it was unacceptable. And the reason why the British felt they could exact those terms in December of 1920 was that there had been a number of unofficial, like, Republican um, manoeuvres clamouring for peace. And the British saw these as a sign of weakness. They weren't, in fact, it was just ill-disciplined amongst some Republican uh, politicians. But the other thing is the British government, even though they were willing to kind of stop the conflict, constantly had their security advisers and British generals whispering in their ear, give us one more month, give us one more month and we'll make the rebels surrender. There'll be no need for a ceasefire at at all. But it became obvious in the spring and and summer of of 1921 that this one more month was, was never going to happen. The IRA were still very active in the field. The May 1921 local elections again were a landslide for uh, Sinn Féin candidates in the in the south. The British government very quickly realised that they had to come to some kind of accommodation and the fact then in June of 1921 that the Northern Parliament was set up and uh, Northern Ireland had been created as an entity effectively took the Northern question off the table and allowed the British more freedom to negotiate with the Republicans and when a ceasefire did come the IRA and the Republicans got much better terms. There was a, It was a formal military agreement between both sides which was registered with the League of Nations and the IRA had gone from being denounced as a murder gang in late 1920 to now being recognised in some British documents as quote, the Irish Army. Now, the truce is announced in newspapers on the 8th of July, and I know from, you know, from uh, reading witness statements took a lot of people, most people, completely by surprise. But it didn't actually come into effect until 12 noon on the 11th of July. Explain the reason for this, this grace period and also how combatants reacted to the news. Well, the reason for the grace period was it was actually based on what had happened on the Western Front during the First World War. When the armistice of the uh, 11th of November 1918 was, was agreed, it was agreed at five in the morning. But there was a delay of six hours to give both sides time to spread the message to all their their units that the ceasefire would come into effect on the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month. And um, that's what happened. But you did have, you know, British, American, French and German units fighting right up until the last minutes and seconds of the First World War. And effectively, the same thing happened in Ireland. It was agreed that both sides would need a lot of time to basically get the word out to isolated units in rural areas or units that were still in the field that there was a ceasefire coming. And as you said, in most accounts, whether it's a black and tan like Douglas Duff or an IRA leader like uh, Tom Barry, all agree that they're taken completely by surprise because there have been so many rumours of peace talk for, you know, six, seven months uh, that people simply thought this was crying wolf and didn't believe it. And the word was actually quite slow to spread 
the IRA were sending out official dispatches, but in a lot of cases, local IRA leaders found out by word of mouth or by reading it in the local newspaper rather than a courier coming with a, a dispatch. And even we think of the British as being very technically sophisticated that they had, you know, telecommunications and they had, you know, telephones and that the word would have been out in a matter of hours. Some British units, um, you know, the truces agreed on a Friday evening, don't find out about it until the uh, late on the Saturday night. And in fact, one British unit in uh, the Buffs Regiment in Castletown Roach in Cork only find out by carrier pigeon because all the roads around them had been trenched by the IRA, the telegraph wires had been, been cut and some IRA units in fact only find out the morning of the ceasefire that it's coming into uh, into effect. And in one case, an IRA flying column leader in Mayo, when he's given a copy of this dispatch telling him, you know, that the war is ending, threatens to shoot the dispatch courier. He says, if this is a joke, it's a bad one, I'll have you shot. And again, it's only when he gets a copy of the Sunday newspaper that he realises this is actually, you know, going to happen. Liz, how was the news received by the Dublin Brigade of the IRA? I mean, obviously, communications would have been considered, you would assume anyway, would be considerably easier in uh, Dublin. Did they even have an idea before the uh, the 8th of July that a ceasefire was, was close? Certainly not amongst the ranks of the, the ordinary volunteers. They're taken completely by surprise with this. And you have the last major action um, undertaken by the Dublin Brigade of the IRA was the uh, troop train ambush out in Ballyferm. It was carried out by members of the 4th Battalion. And you've Pat McRae, and although he's 2nd Battalion, he's there at the ambush. And he talks about, in his witness statement, expecting to see a, a stop press that evening on the 8th of July talking about this massive, massive ambush on this troop train because it was quite a big attack. And they're surprised when they see, and, and the newspapers are there, like, you know, it's a double headline that truce talks, I um, mean, there will be a truce in a couple of days and then troop train ambushed at Ballyferma. And they're really surprised by this. And then you have the action, the major, major action that was going to be carried out by the Dublin Brigade of the IRA on the 10th of July. Um, and it was the, the shooting up where literally... Pretty much every member of the Dunn Brigade of the IRA were going to completely surround O'Connell Street um, after curfew and shoot anyone that was in O'Connell Street. The assumption auxiliaries. being that they would be British soldiers or girlfriends of British soldiers. Exactly. And it would be a suicide mission. But again, you have descriptions of guys that are literally finding out as they're making their way to take part in this event. It's being called off at the last minute. So, no, those on the, the ground, the ordinary volunteers, it seems they were none the wiser as to what was actually going on and find out about it in the newspapers. Now, Pardig, you mentioned the, the end of World War One, and there was an incredible amount of activity in, on the last day of the First World War, the 11th of November uh, 1918. It's been suggested that in the period between the announcement of the truce and the actual truce itself, that Republicans went on the rampage. Is that true? Uh, no. In my research on it, I found out that quite a lot of activities were actually cancelled by the Republicans in the last you know, days and, and hours of the war. The idea that there's an upsurge in Republican violence starts in with British memoirs of the period. General Neville McCready, who's the commander of British forces in, in his memoir, Annals of an Active Life, he writes that you know the British forces immediately, as soon as they heard of the ceasefire, withdrew to their barracks and were completely inoffensive, but that the IRA kept killing people 
people and there was an upsurge in, in violence and innocent people being killed by Republicans up until the very last minute. And again, when you look at the actual breakdown of how many people were killed, both sides, you know, were killing people until the, the ceasefire came into effect. So initially it starts with anti-Republican propaganda from the British and then the Civil War in later writings of history furthers this idea. For example, Pyrrhus Beasley describes the people who go anti-treaty as having been 11th hour warriors and trusaliers, that they only started fighting in the last few days and then they came out as hardliners against the Free State later. General Owen O'Duffy when he's holding a, a Fine Gael or a Blue Shirt rally in, in Kerry in the 1930s, is abused by Republicans. And he said the only thing that these people did, these anti-treaty IRA guys, was shoot a, an inoffensive British soldier on the morning of the truce. And to hear such people shout up the Republic would make a dog sick. And that's obviously not true. Kerry had a much better fighting record during the War of Independence. So a lot of this is coloured by anti-Republican propaganda from the Civil War. And then finally, some of these ideas have been picked up and repeated by newspaper columnists in, in, in modern times. What actually happens is that the violence does continue. As units hear about it on both sides, they end up basically, a lot of guys don't want to go out and go into an ambush um, in the last hours of the war because their own lives are at risk as well. Ambushes are being called off and uh, if you look at the breakdown of the people killed, there's 61 people um, killed during the, the final days and hours of the conflict between about 8 o'clock on the Friday evening when it's announced and 12 noon on the Monday morning when it comes into effect. And if you look at a breakdown of those fatalities by percentage, 53% of them of the fatalities are inflicted by Republicans or Nationalists as opposed to 47% inflicted by uh, British Crown Forces or Loyalists. So to suggest the violence was all on one side is, is totally wrong. And uh, one of the fatalities during this uh, three-day period was a member of Common she was killed just before the truce came into effect. Who was she? What were the circumstances of her death? Yeah, just to, to give an overall breakdown of the, the fatalities, as I said, you're talking about 61 people killed. That's 12 British soldiers, four members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, including Black and Tans, eight Republican combatants, seven IRA volunteers and one common man member, six civilians alleged to be spies executed by the IRA and another in a, an incident associated with that, 12 civilians killed by British Crown Forces and 14 civilians killed in sectarian rioting in, in Belfast. The common man woman who was killed was a woman called Margaret Kyo. She lived in Stella Gardens in Ringsend. If there was any person who embodied kind of the, the spirit of the republicanism or the national movement at the time, it was her. She was the captain of the Croke Ladies Camogie team. She was a trade unionist. She was a member of Conrad Nagelga, uh, quite a fluent and ardent Irish speaker. The official story which was put out about her death at the time was that she had been shot by mysterious raiders to her home and that it looked like it was, uh, you know, a, a British murder gang or assassination unit. After I, I published that story for the first time, the family actually got in, in contact um, over 90 years later and said that the, the real story of what had happened is that there had been British raids in the area. The Kyo family were quite worried because they had an IRA arms dump in the house and when they went to try and move it as the raiders were coming, one of the uh, the bullets fell into the fire, exploded and uh, fatally wounded her and she died uh, the following day, the day the ceasefire, uh, just after the, the ceasefire took effect. And she was the only active member of, of Common Amon killed on active duty during the War of Independence and I'm very happy to say that Dublin City Council and the, the people of Ringsend working together in the Margaret Kyo Committee got a plaque up to mark the, uh, the centenary of her death in July. Now, Liz mentioned the last action by the IRA in Dublin 
Melbourne. Tell us about some incidents that happened around the country in those last few days. Um, well, I suppose the, if we just look at the, the south, first of all, the largest um, single loss of life actually happens in, in Waterford, something called the uh, Kilgobnet Mine Disaster. The IRA, of course, would try to impede British movement by digging trenches across rural roads. The British would come along and, and fill these in, and the IRA then, of course, would have the game of opening them up again and trying to slow down or impede British movements. One trick the British had, though, was that they would sometimes booby-trap these trenches when they refilled them, that they would leave a a heavy stone or something down on top of the spring of a hand grenade or a a purpose-built mine. And in this instance, in in Kilgobnet and Waterford, you had one IRA volunteer, Sean Quinn, who was being assisted by five civilians. Now, it's not clear were they supporters who were quite happy to help him or had he rounded them up at gunpoint. But regardless, what happens is that as they are removing the rubble, the British have put into one of these roads trenches, a trap that's been put there by the Devonshire Regiment explodes and it kills the six of them. This is an incident that the Devonshire Regiment actually celebrate in their regimental history and uh, is, you know, something they don't uh, see any any shame in. But it's very interesting that it, it rarely gets uh, mentioned when you look at people writing about the last days and, and hours of the war. In Cork City, you have uh, four soldiers, British soldiers, who are unarmed, who are off duty, two members of the South Staffordshire Regiment and two members of the Royal Engineers. Now, the traditional story put out about them is that these were boy soldiers, that these were teenagers, they were out buying uh, sweets and and playing pool when they were abducted by the IRA and shot without any cause. The reason that they were actually killed and the full facts of the case is that all four of these uh, soldiers were in their 20s. Most of them were veterans of the First World War. They were very battle-hardened. Some of them had been gassed and wounded on the Western Front. And they weren't children out buying sweets. They were, you know, adult men who were out drinking uh, in advance of the the ceasefire. Now, they're, they're picked up and they are executed while unarmed and it happens the evening before the the truce is due to begin. Now, make no mistake about it, the shooting of unarmed prisoners is a war crime. However, you have to put it in context and the fact is that the person who ordered their shooting was Daniel Hallinan. Hallinan was a member of the IRA and uh, a plasterer in Cork and the night before, uh, one of his best friends, a 20-year-old IRA volunteer called Dennis Spriggs, had been taken from his home and summarily executed by a Captain de Ewell of the South Staffordshire Regiment. The South Staffordshire Regiment had a particularly bad reputation, not just in Cork, for executing summarily executing uh, Republican prisoners and civilians they didn't like the the look of. When they first arrived in Cork, they sparked a two-day riot by shooting dead uh, an ex-British soldier on the streets, uh, apparently without cause. And in Dublin during the 1916, they had been responsible for the the North King Street Massacre. So again, to go back to the shooting of these four British soldiers, it is undoubtedly a war crime coming so close before the ceasefire, but so is the killing of Dennis Spriggs. And when we look at killings in that period, we have to look at you know them in their full context and look at killings by both sides. Now it is at this time there were thousands of IRA men and common them on women interned or in prison in Ireland and in England. Did the truce make any difference to the to the prison regimes? Obviously they weren't released at that stage as they weren't released until after the treaty. 
Uh, yes and no. It depended on the prison, where the prison was and if a prisoner had been sentenced or not. So in Kilmainham, for example, you have over 100 IRA men and Kilmainham at the time, it was like a, a holding prison. So people awaiting trial or to be identified and put on trial. But up to the truce, you have lots of accounts um, from men that were in turn there um, and the majority were there because of the born of the custom house. They describe what the prison regime was, was like. It's very, very strict or it's a typical prison regime. But once the truce was, was came into effect, it's totally relaxed and they smuggle in a camera and they, they take these photographs, they develop these photographs and you can see them like they're having Irish lessons and they even have a football tournament and they even put on plays and they talk about them having to dress up as women because they don't have women in the prison. And one guy writes a letter home saying to his mum, can you tell me how many cigarettes you're sending me in because I'm not getting enough, someone's robbing them on me, so tell me how many you're sending in and can you send a letter to me post in this day because they've changed it but then you look at like of Pentonville where you have say Tom Hales and others who had been sentenced and nothing changed it's really really harsh um, and he talks about when he was released after the treaty how they had this battle with the, the prison warders um, where they go on hunger strike they're forced to like they strip off like you know he's transported naked from one prison to another and actually a number of his prison comrades um, end up in Broadmoor Asylum um, in the internment camps you know there's great descriptions of what it was like the conditions are terrible in general as in the bedding the food everything is, is awful. So it depends on the place, whether you've got prisoners sentenced, waiting trial. Um, but in Kamenum, definitely it changes. And then all of those men that were held in Kamenum were released once the treaty was signed mm. from the 8th of December. Uh, Porig, essentially what we've been talking about is the 20, what becomes the Irish Free State, the 26 counties, because uh, the truce doesn't really operate, does it, in, in Northern Ireland? Uh, no, if you look at the, the very last people who were killed in the, the War of Independence, we think of the truces beginning exactly at, at 12 noon on, you know, the 11th of July 1921. And the last person who's killed in the, the South is, is Hannah Carey. She's a hotel maid who shot dead 10 minutes before the truce by the, the IRA in Killarney. And we often think of her as being the last person killed in the War of Independence. But exactly an hour later, you have uh, Seamus Ledley, who's an IRA volunteer, killed in, in Belfast. The IRA in Belfast, one of the commanders said the truce wasn't really a ceasefire in the north. It was a pause. There was quietness for about an hour when it came in and then things kicked off again. And what had happened was, as the ceasefire was announced in Belfast, there was a lot of tension because, of course, it was the night before the 12th of, of July. The B-specials as a force were being stood down, which caused a lot of anger for the Protestant Unionist community. And uh, you had a number of members of the RIC and B-specials who went out before the ceasefire to avenge some of their comrades who'd been wounded earlier, uh, you know, a week earlier in an IRA ambush and just uh, died that time. And a group of RIC go into uh, Raglan Street in uh, West Belfast near what would today be the, the Falls Road. They attempt to uh, assassinate uh, a local IRA intelligence officer but when they arrive in the area they themselves are, are shot at uh, by the IRA. It's, it's somewhat of an own goal for the IRA because the only RIC constable who's killed Thomas Conlon had actually been sympathetic to them and, and passing them information. But that sparked off, you know, 48 hours of, of violence in Belfast that are actually the bloodiest in the city's history. 
history, you had uh, 22 people killed in, you know, pretty much a, a one day period. And that would be more violent than things we tend to think of today, like, you know, Bloody Friday or the Bally Murphy massacre or anything like that. And things quietened down after the initial that initial bout of rioting in, in Belfast. But if you look at the period between when the ceasefire is announced and the, the signing of the treaty, you have 75 people killed nationally and 65 people are killed in, in Belfast. Because there's two further large outbreaks of rioting in Belfast again in late August, early September. You've rioting that starts in North Queen Street and quickly spreads to other districts. Again, about 20 people killed. And then in late November, the 21st to the 24th, you have a loyalist, Protestant loyalist attack on St. Matthew's Church and Presbytery. And this again kicks off more violence, which results in, again, about uh, close to 2,000 people being, being killed. So really the situation in the north is is totally different during the, the truce. There are still very large but sporadic outbreaks of violence. Liz, we talked about the prisoners, um, but there was a famous escape that takes place during the truce, which causes huge embarrassment to the British. What happened there? Who escaped? It is a huge, huge embarrassment because it's bad enough that, you know, it's Republicans escaping, but it's four Republican women that escape from Mountjoy Jail. And it's planned by Linda Cairns and the other women who escape are May Bourke, Eileen Kyo and Ethna Coyle. And Linda Cairns was serving a 10-year sentence. She had been caught with guns and transporting IRA men. And um, she basically took the blame for it. Gets sentenced for 10 years, but is sent to prison in England. And she basically believes, well, if she's committed her crime in Ireland she should serve her sentence in Ireland so goes on hunger strike and they relent and she's transferred to Mountjoy and there were nine women political prisoners in Mountjoy and four of them go on the escape with the help of two wardresses that they bribed one at least they had a, a cover that they would play a football game out in the yard there was a rope ladder brought in from the outside, thrown over the wall. And on the 30th of October, while this game is going on, this commotion going on, the four of them go over the wall. End up in the aunt's house of Dr John Gorty. It's too hot for them in Dublin, so they have to get out. And Linda, May and Ethna Coyle end up going to Duckett's Grove in Carlow, which was an IRA training camp. And what is actually funny that when they went over the wall, they decided who went over first by the length of their sentence. So Linda is the first one to go over. Then May, she's serving three years. Then Eileen Kyo, and then finally Etna Kyle. But what you then have, like, and it's, it's all in the newspapers, you know, they're hunting for these four women. There's rewards put out and so on. And I don't know if this photograph was published, if the British saw it at the time, but it's the iconic photograph of the three of them in Ducats Grove dressed as IRA volunteers holding the rifles with the Sam Brown belts and they're standing on a Union Jack flag and it's like you can imagine if the authorities saw this it is the biggest two fingers to the authorities if ever there was one and she couldn't come back until the treaty was then signed Parik, finally were there many major breaches or were there any major breaches of the of the truce? There were uh, by both sides, but again, I suppose most of them in, in this instance would be on the Republican side. And what's interesting is a number of them actually happen, or I suppose the most prominent ones happen in London and not in Ireland. The first one is on the 28th of July, 1921, an IRA bomb factory explodes at Greenwich in London. 
this had been where there were three or four IRA volunteers continuously working from about April of 1921 onwards, getting chemicals for arson attacks and manufacturing uh, explosives. And their plan was that if the uh, ceasefire negotiations broke down, that they would be going on a, a bombing campaign and that this would target power stations, it would target the communication network for the London Underground, it would target factories and uh, and industrial buildings as well. And what happened was the um, IRA were manufacturing their grenades there. The building they had in Greenwich was actually a working garage. There was a petrol pump and a petrol store, so perhaps not the uh, the safest of ideas. And there was uh, an explosion there which resulted in a 21-year-old IRA volunteer, Michael McInerney, born in County Clare but raised in London. He actually raced out of the building into the street on fire, managed to put out the flames and got himself to a hospital but died two days later. And obviously this caused quite a shock in Britain that the IRA right under their noses were still preparing for war manufacturing weapons. And then on the 21st of November 1921, an even bigger scandal when the IRA raid Chelsea and Windsor barracks in London and managed to steal quite a number of machines guns. Now, bear with me, this sounds like a a plot from the the Peaky Blinders, but it's actually true. What happens is that Michael Hogan and Ned Lynch, two IRA officers, are sent over from County Clare to London to buy guns during the ceasefire. And what happens is there's IRA men from all over Ireland, as well as Bolsheviks and anarchists, all in London's buying up guns on the black market. So there aren't many available. And the money that Cahill Brewer and Michael Brennan, commander of the 1st Western Division, have promised them hasn't arrived. So they're about to give up on this mission when uh, they manage to make contact with a Sergeant Michael Roach and uh, go out drinking with him in a West End pub. And it turns out that Sergeant Michael Roach was a machine gun instructor with the Irish Guards who had been seconded to a Welsh regiment in uh, in Chelsea and after a few drinks Ned Lynch commented that he would have given us all of Chelsea barracks if we were in a position to take it. <laughs> so after the drinking spree they get into a taxi as I'm sure many of us have done uh, but many of us won't have gone to Chelsea barracks uh, into the officers mess where they continued drinking uh, left the IRA men in the officers mess and next thing they just got a whistle from Sergeant Roach going come back to the taxi and inside were two fully operational Lewis machine guns and two Lee Enfield rifles. Not being content with this, of course, uh, they then decided, why don't we go back to my home regiment in uh, Windsor Barracks? And there they pulled out four Vickers machine guns, which are very large and cumbersome compared to the Lewis, and about 18 rifles. Now, things went went sour for them a few days after that. The guns, of course, were noticed to be missing. Roach was identified as the the culprit, and most of the IRA men were actually um, apprehended. Those are obviously the big headline issues and that one happens, the the raid on the barracks uh, happens three weeks before the treaty is signed. Initially it looked like it would derail the the peace talks but Brewer and Michael Brennan were able to assure Michael Collins that they had not sent these guys over to raid barracks. They were just supposed to buy some guns and keep it low key. I think if the showrunner of Peaky Blinders had come up with that as a script he would have been fired. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. My guests are Parik Og O'Rourke and uh, Liz Gillis and if you'd like to know more about the Truce Parik's 2016 book about it is called Truce Murder Myth and the Last Days of the Irish War of Independence and it's published by Mercier Press After the break in the first installment of our new occasional series Downing Street Diaries we'll hear how the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations began 100 years ago this week The History Show with Maz Dungan on RTE Radio 1. 
Welcome back. This new series of The History Show lines up nicely with the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations that took place in London a century ago between October and December 1921. In the coming weeks and months, we'll be occasionally presenting Downing Street Diaries, checking in on what was happening in London during this critical period. I'm joined by Dr Dara Gannon, lecturer in Irish Studies at University College Dublin, who's been looking at the extensive archival material on the negotiations in both London and Dublin. And Dara, it was... This week, 100 years ago, the Irish representatives, the plenipotentiaries, which becomes a very loaded phrase towards the end, actually arrived at uh, 10 Downing Street. Tell me about, tell me about the, two, the composition of the two sides, as it were. Well, this is a historic moment in both Irish and British political history. The delegates from the Irish side, the plenipotentiaries as they were known, arrived just before 11am on the uh, 11th of October 1921 and they were ushered into 10 Downing Street amid great fanfare in the in the crowds. We have hundreds of London Irish cheering, screaming. We have London Irish women praying outside 10 Downing Street with those iconic images. And they appeared in Rolls Royces bedecked in the finest suits and again this was a major transformation really from the kind of gunmen this murder gang image which had been portrayed in the British media to the respectable political leaders of Irish nationalism and the delegates were ushered into 10 Downing Street by David Lloyd George who um, did not shake their hands which was very important in political protocols but nonetheless entered into the negotiating room where they were met by the British negotiating team. And this is a remarkable scene. When you think of someone like Michael Collins, the most wanted man in empire, sitting across the table from Lord Birkenhead, perhaps one of the best representations of of imperialism and the establishment. This is unheard of in Irish nationalist history. And in many ways, this was the beginning of what would actually turn out to be a strange friendship between Collins and Birkenhead. And you, you had people like Winston Churchill, for example. Now, Churchill was kind of in and out of favour, but at this point he was in. Very much so. He was secretary uh, for the colonies at this stage and he was in a strange liminal place. He was ostensibly a, a liberal, but he was also very strongly associated with the Conservatives. And what has to be remembered, and this was presented to the Irish delegation very strongly by Lloyd George, was that the representatives of Britain were in many ways beholden to the Conservative Party, um, that they could not be seen to concede too much to the Irish delegation in terms of empire, in terms of constitutional status, lest the Conservatives led by Andrew Bonner Law would come in and replace David Lloyd George. And Churchill was someone who had a, a seat in both camps, if you will. Now, the Irish delegation included people like uh, Eamon Duggan, uh, Gavin Duffy. But in reality, did anybody count other than Collins and Griffith? I think that's an important question to raise. De Valera, as we know, did not go to these negotiations. And there is an element of Banquo's ghost, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, not being seated at the table. However, he did send a delegation which he thought would be balanced in the sense of he thought Griffith and Collins would ultimately not break on the empire, that they would be moderate, whereas he trusted Barton, Robert Barton, who is the Minister for Agriculture, and also most importantly, perhaps Erskine Childers, who was a secretary to the delegation to be representative of the Republican ethos and somewhat form a link to the Dáil cabinet in Dublin. Now, the delegation, the Irish delegation, went into the lion's mouth, as in, you know, that's 
the door of, of Downing Street, basically, being that lion's mouth. But uh, they were making assurance doubly sure because apparently, the story goes, that there was an airplane <laughs> waiting for them and a fast car waiting for them if everything went, went pear-shaped. And uh, accompanying Michael Collins was one Ned Broy, who had been his one of his spies in the castle. And Broy was basically there as a bodyguard, wasn't he? Absolutely. We shouldn't lose sight, despite the appearances of political respectability, that these were formal negotiations in the centre of empire, that there was still an ongoing threat of a resumption of war. And this was mentioned throughout the negotiations, that if you do not uh, agree on these terms, that there would be a resumption of war. Lloyd George famously used the term war within three days. And Collins was very mindful of this. As you said, he had a plane in waiting which would have taken five of the uh, plenipotentiaries from a London airport back to Dublin uh, lest they be arrested. Collins was followed throughout this period by uh, members of the uh, British Secret Service. So there was an element of playing away from home. And I think that's something that we need to remember in this first week of the negotiations amid all the fanfare of Collins, Griffith and co being in London that they were away from their home base, that they were dislocated from the Dáil cabinet in Dublin. And a question which hasn't really been asked, I don't think, in the history books, is why did de Valera, certainly why did he not go, but why did he agree to send the delegates to London? If you look at the truce negotiations in July, those were agreed between the British and Irish sides in Dublin, in which the Irish Republicans had home advantage. Here, the Irish side were playing away from home and were somewhat dependent on the kind of rules and conventions of British diplomacy led by Lloyd George. Let's use that phrase playing away from home perhaps in a different sense and uh, look at Michael Collins and rumours about uh, what Collins might or might not have been up to extracurricular-wise when he was in London. Well, this is one of those kind of hidden histories, if you will, that has not gone away. So it is important to remember that... I'm blushing, by the way, as I ask the question. I just should point that out. <laughs> I didn't want to give you away there, Miles. It is important to remember that they are there, the plenipotentiaries are there essentially for two months. And this is a gruelling negotiation day by day, week by week. And so they do have a social life of sorts. And Michael Collins is not only the most wanted man in, in the empire in terms of the British authorities, but he was adored by the British public especially by adoring females. There is a a story which is published in the newspapers whereby Collins attended a requiem mass for the anniversary of uh, Terence McSweeney at Southwark Cathedral on the 25th of October. And as he was leaving the cathedral after mass, he was mobbed by dozens of London Irish girls who showered him with kisses. So he was this kind of pin-up boy for the Irish Republican movement. But it's also important to remember that these were tough negotiations which required some sense of relaxation in the evening. So we have Arthur Griffith going to the theatre. Um, famously, he was seated by accident by beside Herbert Asquith <laughs> in a West End production, um, got lost on the tube on the way home, which is important to note, and that they had active social lives uh, in the evening. And there is also the accusation of too much drinking going on um, at Hans Place and Cadogan Gardens. And there are reports of bills being sent to the doll, which consisted of smashed furniture, excesses of whiskey, and that, of course, would be levelled at the uh, pro-treaty side during the doll debates. So no televisions going through to, into swimming pools in those days, but the equivalent thereof. Tell us a little bit more about Cadogan Gardens, about this house, uh, 22 Hands Place, which I think you've done a bit of research on what it would cost to rent 
a house there now. And basically, uh, the nascent Irish Free State couldn't have afforded it. This was, in many ways, a a political negotiation of the highest order. And in that sense, I'm also thinking in terms of the residences in which the negotiating teams resided. So, for example, the main delegation resided at Hans Place, 22 Hans Place. To give you some sense of the cultural references here, Emily Bronte lived and wrote at 22 Hans Place uh, for about 15 years of her life. This is in West London, uh, salubrious surroundings. Uh, Prince Charles actually went to school just around the corner later in the 20th century primary school. So that gives you some sense of the kind of prestige and status associated with not only the area, but also these negotiations. Interestingly, you referred to Ned Broy earlier. Collins and his retinue of gunmen, primarily the squad and some close IRB associates, actually resided elsewhere about a quarter of a mile away at 15 Cadogan Gardens. I, as you said, I looked into the, the price of, of renting there. Not that I can afford that uh, in 2021 myself. It costs today to rent an apartment in Cadogan Gardens about £10,000. So this was again... Salubrious Sorry, is that a, a month, a year? What a, month, a month. A month. Okay. £10,000 <laughs> wow. a month. Okay. Just to give you some sense, they're right next door to Harrods. Collins actually would look in the windows enviously at Harrods. But it's often remarked that there were differences in the negotiating teams, you know, politically. But there was also a sense of us and them. So at 15 Cadogan Gardens, Collins and his retinue of IRB and IRA gunmen often spoke of the politicians at Hans Place, whereas Collins was kind of the the leader of the gang, so to speak. And so there was a difference of view as to what the, you know, negotiations were about between the political aims and the kind of ordinary guerrillas who were now based at Cadogan Gardens. Well, thank you very much indeed for giving us an idea, a notion of the personalities involved and some of the exotic locations involved as well. Two weeks from now, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about some of the politics of uh, what was going on. But uh, for now, Dr. Dara Gannon, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And uh, as I say, Dara will be back occasionally throughout this series of The History Show for more of the Downing Street Diaries illuminating what was happening in London a century ago. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Next week on the programme, we'll be talking about the life and legacy of Anna Parnell, the founder of the Ladies' Land League. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio 1. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>